I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. Hyponatremia. Hyponatremia can be caused by the following. 1. A net sodium loss in excess of net free water loss. 2. Net free water gain in excess of net sodium gain. Or 3. Free water shift. Severe symptomatic hyponatremia, typically of a sodium level less than 120 mL equivalents per liter, is almost always caused by SIADH. The third cause of hyponatremia is observed in a hyperosmotic hyperglycemic state in which intracellular free water shifts extracellularly to maintain osmotic balance. The extracellular free water shift induces a dilutional state for sodium, hence hyponatremia. The total body sodium, however, is not reduced in this case. Hyponatremia associated with hyperglycemia can be corrected by control of hyperglycemia alone. Pseudohyponatremia is due to conditions that interfere with laboratory tests, such as hyperlipidemia or hyperparaproteinemia. The actual level of sodium in the body is normal, but the laboratory test will indicate hyponatremia as a result of this interference. The hyponatremia associated with hyperglycemia may be corrected as follows. For each 100 mg per deciliter of glucose over normal, normal being about 100, then add 2.4 mL equivalents of sodium as a correction. Hyponatremia may be further classified into hypovolemic, euvolemic, or hypervolemic. Hypovolemic hyponatremia. This is caused by hypotonic to hypertonic fluid loss plus concomitant pure free water or relatively hypotonic fluid replacement. Stated another way, hypovolemic hyponatremia occurs when a patient has lost volume and sodium but lost more sodium. Examples include hypotonic fluid loss, diarrhea, sweating, respiration, in which the urine sodium would be low as the kidneys are trying to actively reabsorb sodium and water, as well as hypertonic fluid losses, diuretics, aldosterone insufficiencies, in which the urine sodium would be high as the kidney cannot reabsorb the sodium or water. Euvolemic hyponatremia. This is usually caused by excess free water reabsorption with SIADH. Causes of ACIADH are many, including malignancy, pulmonary, CNS lesions, antipsychotics, antidepressants, antiepileptic drugs, pain medications, acute nausea, vomiting, and pain. A classic example is a smoker with small cell carcinoma of the lung also known as oat cell carcinoma, a nickname given to it because of the histologic appearance of the cells. This can secrete ADH, among other hormones, discussed in Chapter 9. 
Hyponatremia caused by SIADH is considered euvolemic, even though the body is reabsorbing large amounts of water because of the accumulation of volume can stimulate the intravascular pressure-sensing receptors, the baroreceptors, to induce a natriuric effect to enhance sodium and water excretion. Other causes of euvolemic hyponatremia include excessive ingestion of free water and poor oral intake. The former overwhelms the maximal ability of the kidneys to excrete water, and the latter is caused by the need of the kidneys to pull out solutes with free water excretion. Limited solute intake, poor oral intake, as in alcoholics, or the tea toast diet, limits the ability of the kidneys to excrete free water. The difference between SIADH and the others is that with SIADH, the urine will be concentrated as you're reabsorbing all the water, but the urine will be dilute in all other conditions. Other causes of euvolemic hyponatremia are hypothyroidism, hypocortisolism, and nephrogenic syndrome of inappropriate diuresis. Hypervolemic hyponatremia. In hypervolemic hyponatremia, the hypervolemia is caused by volume overload from the heart, liver, or kidney failure, or hypoalbuminemia, nephrotic syndrome, which leads to a significant interstitial fluid overload. Acute hyponatremia results in decreased osmols in the intravascular space, leading to water rushing into the cells down the osmotic gradient. This precipitates cellular swelling and cerebral edema, leading to altered mental status, headache, vomiting, and seizures. The treatment of hyponatremia can involve the following. Restriction of water to allow the kidneys to fix the problem by urinating out the excess water. Giving salt-containing fluids IV or sodium tablets to correct the sodium. Or give medications, for example, ADH receptor antagonists, the Vaptans, or ADH antagonists, such as demeclocycline, to increase free water excretion. Care must be taken not to correct hyponatremia too quickly. This is because with chronic hyponatremia, with decreased intravascular osmols, the body has made intracellular adjustments to the fewer osmols, increasing the osmols in the bloodstream rapidly by introducing a large sodium load from IV fluids will pull water out of the cells because of the osmotic gradient. This pull of water out of the cells is particularly destructive to myelin, potentially causing a syndrome called osmotic demyelinating syndrome, or ODS, previously called central pontine myelinolysis, CPM, which is a condition that may cause permanent neurologic damage or death. Hypernatremia. Hypernatremia can occur from the following, a gain of sodium, a loss of free water, which is more common, or less commonly, intracellular free water shift. It may not be intuitive that loss of water could cause hypernatremia. Wouldn't people just drink water? That's true, and that's why hypernatremia is often seen in those with altered mental status, for example, nursing home patients, or intubated patients, people who cannot get access to free water. 
Another way to lose water is to have diabetes insipidus, which causes polyuria and increased urine production of very dilute urine. Symptoms of hypernatremia include altered mental status and coma. In central DI, the problem is centrally located in the posterior pituitary gland. If it fails to secrete ADH, hypernatremia will result via lack of water reabsorption in the distal nephron, producing a large loss of free water in the urine. This is sometimes seen after head trauma if the posterior pituitary is damaged. This condition will respond to desmopressin, DDAVP, a synthetic ADH. Nephrogenic diabetes insipidus occurs when there is a problem with the V2-ADH receptors in the kidney. There is ADH, but the kidney can't respond to it. This is caused by chronic lithium use, hypokalemia, or hypercalcemia, or by mutations in the ADH receptors, but that's rare. This condition does not respond to desmopressin administration. To recap, differentiation of the two types of diabetes insipidus can be done by administration of desmopressin, a synthetic ADH analog. In central DI, the body will respond to desmopressin because the problem is a lack of ADH and not a problem with the receptor pathway. The urine osmolarity should increase, become more concentrated as the fluid is resorbed from the collecting duct by at least 50%. If the urine remains dilute, it indicates that the problem may be with the kidney's ability to use ADH and therefore suggests nephrogenic DI. Interestingly, the treatment of nephrogenic DI is a thiazide diuretic. This is counterintuitive, but as salt and water is lost instead of just water with the diuretic use, the increased RAA axis activation will cause increased sodium and water reabsorption in earlier parts of the nephron because of an upregulation of the sodium proton exchanger and the proximal tubule by angiotensin II. This leads to a net decrease in water loss. If primary polydipsia is thought to be in the differential diagnosis of dilute polyuria, although this causes hyponatremia and would lead to dilute urine, then fluid restriction can lead to a diagnosis. If the patient does not take in fluids with primary polydipsia, the urine will concentrate normally, which is not the case in diabetes insipidus. Hypokalemia and hyperkalemia. Changes in potassium level alter the resting membrane potential, leading to abnormal cellular activity. Potassium homeostasis is controlled by the kidneys with aldosterone being the key regulatory hormone leading to excretion of potassium in the urine. As mentioned in the acid-base section, cells also have a proton-potassium exchanger leading to changes in potassium levels with changes in pH. Acidosis causes cells to take in protons in exchange for putting potassium into the bloodstream, where alkalosis causes cells to give protons to the bloodstream in exchange for taking in potassium. Hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia is defined as a potassium level greater than 5.0 milliequivalents per liter. Causes. 
Hyperkalemia can be caused by many factors, with the main causes including the following. Renal excretion decreased, cellular lysis, and transcellular movement. Causes of decreased renal excretion include renal failure, the inability to excrete potassium, hypoaldosteronism, because aldosterone causes potassium loss in the urine, and potassium-sparing diuretics, preventing the elimination of potassium. Cell lysis, as occurs with rhabdomyolysis, skeletal muscle breakdown, or high cell turnover, such as in some leukemias and lymphomas, can cause hyperkalemia because it is the spilling the intracellular potassium into the bloodstream. Lysis of cells during blood draws, hemolysis, can lead to elevated potassium in the blood sample as well, so it is important to keep that in mind. If hemolysis is suspected, the sample should be redrawn. Transcellular movement, as noted earlier, can cause acidosis as the excess proton in the bloodstream moves into the cells in exchange for potassium. Insulin and activation of the sympathetic nervous system both activate the sodium-potassium ATPases in cells, promoting potassium uptake. Loss of either of these can cause hyperkalemia. Findings. Electrocardiograph findings include peaked T waves from vigorous accelerated repolarization, PR interval prolongation, QRS widening, and eventually a sinusoidal tracing, which is a sign of life-threatening hyperkalemia. Ventricular arrhythmias can also occur from abnormal excitability of the heart. Muscle weakness can occur because of the higher resting membrane potential leading to sodium channels not being able to fully reset, and repolarization is incomplete. Treatment. Treatment is threefold. First, reduce myocardial irritability to prevent arrhythmia and death. Second, move potassium intracellularly to temporarily reduce potassium. And third, promote potassium loss through the urine and stool. Reduction of the myocardial irritability is via immediate calcium gluconate administration, which helps stabilize the cell membranes. This should always be the first step when faced with an unstable, hyperkalemic patient. Next, potassium can be moved intracellularly by increasing the sodium-potassium ATBase activity via insulin, administered with glucose to prevent hypoglycemia, and sympathetic stimulation via albuterol, or by causing an alkalosis and promoting proton-potassium exchange across the cell via bicarbonate administration. However, these actions only shift potassium into cells, which is a temporary measure. The excess potassium must eventually be removed from the body typically via potassium-wasting diuretics, including furosemide, potassium-binding resins that bind potassium in the intestines, such as sodium polystyrate sulfonate, which is called kaexalate, or dialysis. Hypokalemia. Hypokalemia is defined as a potassium level less than 3.5 milliequivalents per liter. 
Causes. The causes of hypokalemia in general are the opposite of the causes of hyperkalemia and involve the following. Increased renal excretion, transcellular movement, and gastrointestinal loss. Increased renal excretion occurs in hyperaldosteronism from any cause, hypercortisolism because of the high levels of cortisol that bind the aldosterone receptor, and potassium-wasting diuretic use. Hypokalemia can also be seen in states of increased diuresis, such as diabetes, from glucosuria leading to polyuria. Hypokalemia can also be seen with alkalosis because the cells give up some protons to help replenish the lost serum protons and exchange it by taking in potassium through the potassium proton exchangers we have already mentioned. Finally, the gastrointestinal fluids are generally potassium-rich, stomach acid and the stool, so vomiting and diarrhea can cause potassium loss, further exacerbated by volume loss leading to RAA axis stimulation and increased potassium loss via aldosterone action. Findings. Electrocardiographic findings include the presence of a U-wave, a small hump after the T-wave, and altered membrane potentials can also lead to arrhythmias with hypokalemia. There is muscle weakness caused by a more negative membrane resting potential Therefore, hypokalemia or hyperkalemia causes muscle weakness. Treatment Potassium repletion and correction of the underlying cause. Avoid alkalinization and use of glucose or insulin in patients with severe hypokalemia because both of these can increase intracellular potassium uptake and exacerbate the existing hypokalemia. Urinalysis Urolithiasis, glomerular disease. Urinalysis and urine microscopy. Understanding basic urinalysis, or UA, and the urine microscopy will help you understand the pathology of the kidney. A typical urinalysis has many findings which give clues to the function or dysfunction of the kidney. Color. Gross appearance of the urine can be yellow, concentrated urine, clear, dilute urine, tea-colored, or red, blood or myoglobin in the urine. Ingestion of certain foods, such as beets, can also create a reddish coloration to the urine, known as beeturia. Specific gravity. The specific gravity of plasma is 1.010. Any higher and the urine is more concentrated than plasma, any less and the urine is more dilute than plasma. In renal failure, the kidney loses its ability to concentrate or dilute urine, and the specific gravity can be stuck at 1.010. pH. The pH can have a wide range, depending on the acid-base status of the patient. In a urinary tract infection or with urolithiasis kidney stones, a high pH can signify the presence of ammonia from urease-splitting bacteria such as proteus. Protein. Normally, the urine should be relatively free of protein. Proteinuria can occur when the glomerulus does not adequately prevent large proteins such as albumin from being filtered in nephrotic syndrome, or the proximal tubules fail to absorb normally filtered low molecular weight proteins. Routine urinalysis is not sensitive enough to detect small amounts of albumin. 
In addition, it does not detect Bentz-Jones proteins seen in multiple myeloma. Detection for the latter may be done with prior addition of sulfosalicylic acid to the urine. More sensitive testing for low-degree albuminuria, microalbuminuria, may be done separately to detect early glomerular injury in diabetic patients. Glucose. Normally, glucose is filtered and then reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. With hyperglycemia, the excess glucose can overwhelm the transporters and lead to glucose in the urine called glucosuria. Ketones. Present when the body is using fatty acids for energy, ketones can be a clue to diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, or starvation, with subsequent fat catabolism for nutrition. In DKA, there are two main ketones produced, acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate, but UA cannot detect the latter. Bilirubin. This can be seen with increased levels of conjugated or water-soluble bilirubin, such as in liver disease or gallbladder disease. Urobilinogen. This is formed by bacterial modification of bilirubin in the gut. If urobilinogen is present, it means that bilirubin is making it into the intestines, and therefore it is less likely an obstructive jaundice that's present, because if there is no bile getting into the gut, then there can be no urobilinogen produced to be excreted in the urine. Blood. The blood dipstick will turn positive with the presence of either blood or myoglobin in the urine. Blood in the urine can be formed from broken down red blood cells being excreted in the urine from hemolysis, from red blood cell casts in nephritic syndrome, or red blood cells from a lower urinary tract bleed. Myoglobin can be from rhabdomyolysis, skeletal muscle breakdown, where myoglobin is stored. Differentiation of these entities can only be done by microscopy. With myoglobinuria, there will be no red blood cells on microscopy. Nitrites. Many gram-negative bacteria reduce nitrate to nitrites, which can be seen on the UA. The most common urinary tract infection pathogen, E. coli, is a nitrate reducer. However, this reduction takes some time to occur and may be negative even in the setting of a UTI if the patient is urinating frequently or has an infection by an organism that is not a nitrate reducer. Therefore, it is a specific positive result almost guarantees a UTI, but not a sensitive negative result does not rule out a UTI test. Leukocyte esterase. Leukocyte esterase is an enzyme released by white blood cells. The presence of leukocyte esterase indicates the presence of white blood cells and suggests a UTI or other inflammatory condition of the urinary tract. For example, renal tuberculosis, chlamydia urethritis, stones or stents that can irritate the ureters. Microscopy allows the analysis of any cells, casts, or crystals in the urine. This is important because it can give insight into some of the urinalysis abnormalities described. Cells. Red blood cells, or RBCs, may indicate glomerular bleeding, lower urinary tract bleeding, or contamination from menstruation in women. White blood cells, or WBCs, indicate the presence of an infection or inflammation. Bacteria can indicate a urinary tract infection, but can also be a contaminant if the specimen was not collected in a clean fashion. Casts. Red blood cell casts indicate glomerular bleeding or acute glomerular nephritis. White blood cell casts indicate an ongoing intrinsic kidney infection, pyelonephritis, or an allergic reaction, interstitial nephritis. 
granular casts indicate varying degrees of degenerated cellular casts, for example, degenerated red blood cells or white blood cell casts, and are thus nonspecific. Muddy brown casts indicate the presence of dead necrotic renal tubular cells and are seen in acute tubular necrosis. Waxy casts are acellular and indicate advanced kidney disease. Finally, fatty casts are seen in nephrotic syndrome. See the explanation of nephrotic syndrome. Crystals and stones. Precipitation may reflect dietary intake. Calcium oxalate stones with high oxalate-containing foods or drugs, for example, acyclovir, in association with low urine flow. Excessive precipitation of specific crystals may indicate increased stone risks. Kidney stones, urolithiasis. Kidney stones come in many types and sizes. See Table 15.4. Clinically, symptomatic stones cause hematuria and sudden-onset flank pain, in which the patient continues to move because they are trying to find a less painful position but cannot. The pain is often so severe as to cause nausea and vomiting. Stones can cause obstruction and hydronephrosis from the increased back pressure, potentially leading to kidney damage. Inadequate fluid intake is a predisposing factor for all stones because the concentration of the compounds making up the stones is higher, promoting precipitation and stone formation. Most stones, except uric acid, can be seen by radiography and are termed radioopaque although cysteine stones are only faintly radiopaque. Ultrasound can show obstruction, i.e. hydronephrosis, but not the stone itself. Calcium stones. The most common 80% stones are composed of calcium oxalate in adults or calcium phosphate in children. Predisposing factors include anything that causes hypercalcemia or increases oxalate concentration. One classic scenario is the presence of stones after ethylene glycol or antifreeze ingestion because its final metabolite is oxalate or oxalic acid. Other predisposing factors include vegan diets, some vegetables such as spinach are high in oxalates, and inflammatory bowel disease. Poor fat absorption causes calcium to bind to fat instead of oxalate in the gut, leading to oxalate absorption. These stones appear as envelopes or dumbbells on microscopy. Treatment for recurrent stones is hydrochlorothiazide because it increases calcium reabsorption in the distal nephron, thereby decreasing its concentration in the urine. Avoid loop diuretics in these patients because they can increase calcium excretion in the urine. Magnesium ammonium phosphate, or struvite. Ammonium can be produced by organisms that split urea with their urease enzyme, typically protease species. The ammonium is a base, and therefore the urine will become alkaline, have a high urine pH, which is a key finding. Unfortunately, these stones can get so large that they fill the entire renal pelvis, termed staghorn calculus because it looks like antlers. Treatment involves antibiotics to kill the urease-producing organism and potentially surgery for removal of very large stones. Uric acid stones the only truly radiolucent, meaning not seen on x-ray examination, stone, uric acid stones often occur in those with high uric acid levels, hyperuricemia, such as patients with gout, 
or those with high cell turnover rates because uric acid is a purine nucleotide breakdown byproduct in conditions such as leukemia. Treatment is allopurinol, which inhibits xanthine oxidase and prevents uric acid production in the purine breakdown pathway. These stones appear kite-shaped on microscopy. Initial treatment can also include high fluid intake and alkalization of the urine to shift the uric acid molecules into their ionized or soluble form. These stones are radiolucent. Remember, uric acid stones are radiolucent and therefore unseen on radiographs. They can be diagnosed with a computed tomography or CT scan. Cysteine stones. Cysteine stones are rare, essentially only found in those with cystinuria, an autosomal recessive disease. Consider this condition in patients who have a family history of renal stones. They appear hexagonal on microscopy. Treatment is with high fluid intake and alkalinization of the urine to keep the cysteine in its ionized and soluble form. Glomerular diseases. The glomerulus is implicated in a wide variety of pathologic conditions. Generally, glomerular diseases will allow large amounts of protein, nephrotic syndromes, or red blood cells and some protein, nephritic syndromes, to pass through the glomerulus, leading to hematuria and or proteinuria. Excretion of more than 3.5 grams of protein over 24 hours or a result of more than 3-plus proteinuria on a urine dipstick are considered nephrotic-range proteinuria, with lesser amounts more typically seen in nephritic syndromes. The terminology describing the syndromes, for example, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, a nephrotic syndrome, can be confusing, but is explained here. All these are histologic determinations after percutaneous kidney biopsy has been obtained. Focal versus diffuse. This defines the number of glomeruli on a biopsy affected. If less than half of the glomeruli on the biopsy are affected, it is focal. If more than half are affected, it is diffuse. Segmental versus global. This defines how much of each individual glomerulus is affected. For each affected glomerulus, if only part is affected, then it is segmental. If the entire glomerulus is affected, it is global. Therefore, Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis means that less than half of the glomeruli are affected, focal, and of those affected, only part of each glomerulus is affected, segmental. Membranous versus proliferative versus membranoproliferative. In membranous, the glomerular basement membrane becomes thickened in parts. Those thickenings appear as spikes and domes on microscopy because of the bulging membrane. Proliferative indicates the cells are proliferating and numerous nuclei will be seen on microscopy from the added cell count. Membranoproliferative just indicates that there is membranous thickening and proliferation. This leads to so-called tram track appearance because the basement membrane is rebuilt on top of the damaged deposits. Nephrotic syndromes are usually caused by destructive cytokines produced by immune cells that cause the loss of negative charge barrier, the loss of heparin sulfate leading to the loss of negative repelling forces between podocytes and subsequent fusion of the podocytes, or by an intrinsic abnormality in various podocyte proteins. 
glomerulosclerosis versus glomerulonephritis. Sclerosis means hardening. In glomerulosclerosis, there is sclerotic scarred areas that lose the ability to filter secondary to capillary collapse. In glomerulonephritis, itis meaning inflammation, there is ongoing glomerular inflammation. Crescentic. Used to describe the appearance when inflammatory cells and fibrin fill Bowman's space, leading to a crescentic appearance. This is always indicative of a rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, and therefore bad. The best way to remember nephrotic syndrome is the mnemonic nephrotic oncotic. This rhymes because the oncotic pressure is based on protein, which is what is lost in nephrotic syndromes to a much greater degree than in nephritic syndromes, leading to decreased oncotic pressure and subsequent edema. Criteria. More than 3.5 grams per 24-hour protein lost in the urine. This leads to the passage of negatively charged proteins into the urine, especially albumin, leading to hypoalbuminemia, low intravascular oncotic pressure, and edema. The edema is further exacerbated by the decreased effective arterial volume from the hypoalbuminemia, leading to the RAA axis activation, sodium retention, and worsening edema. There is also evidence that there is an intrinsic increase in sodium reabsorption independent of the RAA axis in nephrotic syndrome. The liver reacts to hypoalbuminemia and the loss of other large proteins by increasing its synthetic function, but unfortunately it also increases the synthesis of hypolipoproteins, leading to hypercholesterolemia. Loss of cholesterol in the urine leads to fatty casts and the so-called Maltese cross appearance under polarized light. Loss of other proteins is, is significant as well. The loss of antithrombin-3, AT3, an anticoagulant molecule among other anticoagulants, leads to hypercoagulability and increased risk for renal vein thrombosis, lower extremity deep vein thrombosis, and pulmonary embolism. The loss of immunoglobulins make patients more susceptible to infections. In nephritic syndromes, red blood cells can pass through the glomerulus, and usually also proteins, because if large red blood cells can pass through, so can smaller proteins. Criteria, red blood cell casts on urine microscopy. It is important to remember that when red blood cells pass through the glomerulus, they become red blood cell casts meaning protein-coated, and can be seen as such on the urine on microscopy. Imagine that the red blood cell gets banged up as it passes through the nephron and needs a cast. This can differentiate blood that has passed through the kidney, glomerulonephritis, from bleeding at a site after the kidney, such as a lower urinary tract bleed, bleeding from the ureter, bladder, or urethra. The larger permeability of the glomerulus in this case is attributed to inflammation and damage by neutrophils, usually a response to complement deposition at the glomerulus, type 3 hypersensitivity, or antibodies directed at the basement membrane of the glomerulus itself, type 2 hypersensitivity. See Chapter 6 for an explanation of the various hypersensitivities. The severe glomerular inflammation decreases glomerular performance and leads to a decreased glomerular filtration rate with oliguria, or decreased urine output. Remember that this is a problem with the glomerulus, the tubes in the nephron work just fine, 
but because the glomerulus is not functioning properly, the performance of the whole kidney suffers. As a result of the decreased GFR, the functioning tubules attempt to increase sodium reabsorption to try to correct the decreased GFR, potentially leading to hypertension and edema. See Table 15.5 for the common types of glomerular diseases and their characteristics. Other systematic diseases causing glomerular damage. Diabetes is a very common cause of renal damage. Diabetes causes a triad of retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy as part of its microvascular disease, and it is the most common cause of chronic renal failure in the United States. Disease severity is based on glycemic control. Good glycemic control will prevent or slow the progression of diabetic glomerulonephropathy. The pathogenesis is non-enzymatic glycosylation of the basement membrane, which is a fancy term for the molecules of glucose attaching themselves to the proteins of the basement membrane without the aid of enzymes, hence non-enzymatic. This modification prevents the negative charge barriers from functioning properly, leading to proteinuria. NEG of the basement membranes leads to thickening and loss of the charge barrier of proteinuria. NEG of arterioles causes in the efferent arterioles to be affected first, before the afferent arterioles, leading to hyaline arteriolosclerosis, narrowing and hardening. This causes increased hydrostatic pressure on the glomerulus with subsequent glomerular hyperfiltration, increased initial GFR, and damage. This is why ACE inhibitors are nephroprotective in diabetes. Early kidney damage can be detected by checking for microalbuminuria, a sensitive test for small amounts of albumin leaking in the urine. Diabetics should regularly be screened for microalbuminuria. On biopsy, Kimmel-Steele-Wilson nodules can be present, see figure 15.22. These are focal nodules of pink hyaline material that forms in the glomerulus from NEG. Amyloidosis describes any disease in which abnormal proteins deposit in tissues, leading to organ damage. These amyloid plaques are improperly folded proteins in beta-pleated sheet configuration. Several types of proteins can form deposits. AL amyloidosis, amyloid light chains, is seen in multiple myeloma in which Bentz-Jones proteins are present, immunoglobulin light chains, hence AL. AA amyloidosis, amyloid-associated, is caused by any disorder that has long-standing cell breakdown with chronic inflammation, including autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis, but also chronic infections such as tuberculosis. There are other miscellaneous diseases that require brief mention. Alport syndrome, mostly X-linked recessive. Hereditary mutation of type 4 collagen preventing proper basement membrane formation in many areas, leading to the splitting of the BM in glomerulus and nephritic syndrome. Also implicated in eye problems, lenticonus, deafness, and nerve disorders for the same reason. Thin basement membrane disease, autosomal dominant. Characterized by thin basement membranes leading to proteinuria and microscopic hematuria also known as benign familial hematuria because the disease itself does not lead to any serious renal problems. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. 
A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step One, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.